If you happen to have come in since the beginning, I just want to apologize again for the dim mood lighting. It's not on purpose, uh, but we've just had some problems with the lights this morning, so I hope that's not too much of a difficulty for anybody. If you have a Bible, you may want to turn to Romans chapter 8. We're going to start with verse 17. If you don't have a Bible, we've got the verses printed in the bulletin for you, and um, you can follow along there. This is part of a continuing series on the book of Romans, and um, we've been working through that for some time now, uh, and we are been in chapter 8, I guess, for six or seven sermons now, and we've made our all the way all the way here to verse 17, which seems maybe a little slow, but if there's a lot here in this chapter. Uh, in one sense, every chapter of the Bible is a great chapter, but uh, even amongst the great, all the great chapters of the Bible, this is certainly one of the central ones, uh, in my opinion. It's worth taking our time working through. But uh, in this chapter, as has previously been noted, uh, Paul has uh, begun to shift gears or shift his emphases a little bit in this letter to the Romans. Prior to chapter 8, Paul has been concentrating on what it is that God has done for his people. And what God has done is this. God has taken uh, people who were completely undeserving And he has determined in his own heart to love these undeserving people anyway. And for reasons entirely known only to him. And determining to love them, to bring them into his forever family, meant means that he had to deal with their unrighteousness, their sinfulness, first of all. And he did this through Jesus' death. That wasn't all he had to do. He not only had to deal with their unrighteousness, he had to then supply them with the righteousness they were lacking. Uh, a holiness without which they would not see the Lord, to use the language of Scripture. And so he did this too through the Lord Jesus Christ. So the first half of this letter is focused in the main on those sorts of things, what God has done for us. But now in chapter 8, Paul shifts attention from that to what God has done and is doing, not just for us, but in us by means of his Holy Spirit. And the main thing that God has done is, is to that very thing. He sent his Spirit into the hearts of his people to live within us. And by that process and by his doing that, a lot of things have happened. Uh, He's made us spiritually alive. He's given us eyes to see and ears to hear what we could not see or hear or understand before. Another way to describe what God is doing is to say this, and you've heard me say it before, but it bears repeating. But by sending his spirit to indwell us, God is actually making us Uh, to become the righteous people that he's already credited us with uh, in the Lord Jesus Christ. He's bringing about the sort of life and lifestyle that the law of God uh, codifies and it describes, but which in its own power, the law of God cannot produce that in a person's life. It simply can't do it. But the, the Spirit indwelling us can do it and does do it. And so the presence of the Holy Spirit in a Christian's life is a big deal. It's a critical issue. It's a central issue. Indeed, as we've seen, it is the, the presence of the Holy Spirit is the determinative indicator that a person belongs to God. It is the indisputable proof that He is our God and we are His people. And so because it is so important, we took some time in an earlier study to look at just that, to think about the Spirit indwelling us and some of the realities that flow from that truth. And then after doing that, looking at that, we pause to consider the all-important question that all of this raises for us, namely, how do you know, right? 
How do you know? Because we've seen all the assurances that, that Paul gives us in Romans 8, all the comforting things he mentions there in chapter 8. All of those things are contingent upon this one truth, that in fact the Spirit does dwell within his people. But that's just it. That's just it for us. How do we know that? How do I know that? How do we know that the Spirit of God is living within us? Answering that question was uh, what our last study was all about. And while there are several things that could be said in response to that question, we focused our energies on the answer to be found right here in Romans verses 13 to 14. So how can we know objectively that the Spirit of God is in fact living and working within us? Paul's answer is because by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds or the misdeeds of the body. You are engaging in hand-to-hand combat with sin, with your sin. And in looking at that, we focused on this phrase, by the Spirit, because that's the key to the whole thing. Paul doesn't merely talk about people putting to death the misdeeds of the body in their own strength, by their own striving. He talks about doing it by the Spirit. But what does it mean to put to death the deeds of the body by the Spirit? And the short answer, as we saw, is this. Putting to death the deeds of the body by the Spirit means to fight hard, to wrestle with our sin from within the assured, from within inside this assured understanding that only the Spirit can give us, but from within this understanding that we are secured, that we are forever children of God, and one of the Spirit's main roles is to cause the people of God to be aware of that, to be deeply aware of their adoption as the children of God. The Spirit gives us a knowledge and a conviction That we really do belong to God and that we have the right. We have the privilege of running to him and crying out to him. And that sort of knowledge makes all the difference in the world. Because when we're operating out of that kind of knowledge, when we wrestle with our hearts out of the firm conviction of of God's settled love for us, that that is settled, that changes everything. It changes our war against sin from this never-ending attempt to please a never-satisfied father to something else. It changes that battle from the attempt to appease a harsh taskmaster into an admittedly hard yet ultimately glad pursuit of the one who loves us and has loved us and like no other, who is in fact himself the lover of our souls. So that's as far as we got last time, being reminded of the Spirit's great work in convincing us of our adoption and how that assists us of our struggle with sin. We pick up with that thought this morning and build on it. Before we do, let's pray together. Please pray with me. Father in heaven, please open up our hearts and minds to receive the truth that you would have us receive in this moment. Please cause that truth to land in our individual hearts in just the right way, at just the right angle, in just the right place. To attack the particular spiritual cancer that's eating away at all of us. But which doesn't look exactly the same on any two of us. Father, only a surgeon like you could take the very same truth and wield it in a million different ways to accomplish a million different purposes. But that's what we're asking you to do again. And we're asking you to do this not for us, but for you, for your glory, which one day we will believe is worth it all, even if we struggle today. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's listen now to the passage. It's short, so pay attention. 
Uh, it'll, it'll be gone before you know it. It's not a lot of words, not, not a lot of cars in this particular train, but the amount of freight on each car is pretty substantial. Romans 8, starting at verse 16, for context. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him, in order that we may also be glorified with Him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Now there's three main things, of course, I want you to notice this morning. Uh, Firstly, as we saw last week, if we're God's children, which we are, then that means we're also His heirs. It means we have an inheritance. We have a stake in what God has determined to give all those He's called by name. When I was growing up in Slidell, one of my closest friends from high school was a guy named Jeff. We were always at each other's houses because we lived in the same neighborhood. My mother used to call Jeff her other son, and Jeff's mom used to call me her other son. And it was all in fun, and we had a great time with each other. But the thing is this. Uh, no matter how often that happened, no matter how much this other family used to refer to me as their other son, the fact is I really was no son at all. And one of the proofs of that is simply the fact that I, I have no inheritance coming to me from that family. I'm not an heir. My name does not appear on any will. I may have been a son of sorts, but I was and never will be an heir to that family. But that's not how it is with God. When he calls us his children, his sons and daughters, he means it. And one of the proofs of that is the fact that we are not only sons and daughters, we're heirs. We have an inheritance. But what does that mean to be an heir of God? To be a fellow heir with Christ? It means a few things. Uh, With this language, Paul is taking us back to the earliest portions of Scripture, to the time of Abraham, the book of Genesis, the great promises that God made to Abraham. When he chose him out of all the peoples on the earth. And he determined to bless him and his offspring, saying that he would make him a great nation. That he would make his name great. That he himself would be a blessing and that in him all the families of the earth would be blessed. Well, if you take that, that promise, that great initiating promise, and you kind of fast forward Hundreds of years, you get to Paul's letter to the Galatians where he's talking about Abraham. And we learn there that the ultimate fulfillment of the promises to Abraham is found in the Lord Jesus. Who is not just a descendant of Abraham, but actually Paul says he's the descendant of Abraham. He's the one who's the ultimate heir of the promises of God. The one whom God had in mind all along when he made those promises to Abraham. And so it is that all those who are in Christ, who are united to Him by grace through faith, are by that union true descendants of Abraham. And such are recipients of those promises to Abraham. They are the true heirs of God together with Christ. And that is the rich background to the words that appear in Romans 8. But here's a question. What precisely is it that we inherit? What are we heirs of? And heirs too. As we've seen already, we are through Christ heirs to the promises of God. But what are those promises about? If you look at Genesis 12 and 15 and 17, different times where God spoke to Abraham, you see various things. 
You see this promise of land, of becoming a great nation, having a great name, being a blessing to all the nations of the world. A number of things are said. But is there something that all of these promises are circling around? I think there is. One commentator has pointed out, one clue to discerning what this might be can be found in Romans 4, which we've already looked at. But verse 13, Romans 4, Paul writes this. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. So what we have here is the Apostle Paul looking at all these various things that are promised to Abraham and he summarizes, summarizes all of those promises with the phrase, heir of the world. That's how Paul summarizes. That's where all the promises to Abraham ultimately are pointing to. A future where God's people inherit the world, the new heavens and earth, to use the language of Revelation. One writer talks about it in this way. If you share the faith of Abraham, then you are a fellow heir with him. And the inheritance, Paul said, is the world. If you're an heir of God, then you will inherit what is God's. And God owns the world. Psalm 24, 1, the earth is the Lord's and all it contains, the world and those who dwell in it. So if the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, then the heirs of the Lord will inherit the earth and everything in it. What is our inheritance? The world, the earth and all that is in it, the nations, all things. Okay, that's a start. That's a start. But there's got to be more to it than that in terms of our inheritance. Our inheritance ultimately has to be about more than the possession of things, even great things. It has to be about more than the acquisition of material blessings because if it isn't, that would mean that at the heart of our inheritance there is enshrined a kind of idolatry, an elevation of the things of God above God himself, which is a further clue. Remember the Garden of Eden before the fall of humankind into sin. Adam and Eve are there. It's a wonderful place. But what was it about the garden that was so wonderful? Was it the place itself? I mean, no doubt it was stunningly beautiful. Was it the lack or absence of hardship or difficulty? Surely that was a wondrous thing. Who wouldn't love that? But those things, as great as they may be, were not the most special thing. What was so special about the garden? What's so special about the garden is that God was there. God was there dwelling with his people. It's the place where that happened. And after the fall of humankind and the ejection from the garden, you look at the promises made to Abraham and his descendants, and you look at Jesus as the descendant through whom these promises are ultimately fulfilled, and you see where all the trajectories are heading in Scripture. It's really, really, it's all about heading back and getting everything back to how it was in the garden. Isn't it? I mean, isn't that where all of this is heading? Isn't it so much about getting back to the... To, to that place, that situation where God again dwells with His people. In a world that's been restored and renewed, where sin is vanquished and evil is non-existent. And when that happens again, 
then the thing, the main thing about that will be is that God will be there and He will be with His people. He will be with us. And that points us to what is really at the heart of our inheritance as children of God. The main thing, the prize that lies at the center of our inheritance is God Himself. God Himself is the prize. Piper says this about that. He says, consider Romans 5, 2. We exult in hope of the glory of God. In other words, the great joy of our hope is that one day we will see and savor the glory of God himself. Psalm 73, 25 to 26. Whom have I in heaven but you? And besides you, I desire nothing on earth. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. If he is not precious to you, what a stranger you are to your inheritance. If you love his gifts, think how wonderful the giver must be. And think what an insult it is to take a gift from someone's hand and delight in it more than you delight in the giver. God himself is our portion. We were made for him. And all the good things that he has made for us are meant to reveal more of him and send our hearts singing to God. Right? So if we are sons and daughters of God, if we're children of God, then we're heirs of God, and at the heart of that inheritance, the most prized blessing of all is God Himself and restored eternal fellowship with Him, living with Him, dwelling with Him. The second thing I want you to see this morning is that while being sons means also being heirs, there's nevertheless a condition placed upon our inheritance. It's a stated provision in these verses. If we're children, then we're heirs, provided, says Paul, provided that we suffer with him. There's an inseparability between these things, between suffering and being heirs and seeing the glory of God. That's certainly true for Jesus, right? His suffering and His glory were inseparable. And it's true for everyone who belongs to Jesus. It's not just Paul saying this. If you look at other places in the New Testament, it's all over the place. Luke 9.23, Jesus Himself says, uh, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. What's that about, taking up the cross daily? That's about suffering. 1 Peter 4, 12-13, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. So there's a connection between suffering and glory. There's a necessary connection. But what are we talking about? What, what sort of suffering is in view here? Well, at the risk of being overly simplistic, there's at least three kinds of suffering uh, to consider. The suffering that comes as a result of our sin. Hebrews talks about that. There's a suffering that comes because of our Christian profession, because we've aligned ourselves with Jesus, and uh, because our Savior was a suffering Savior, and if we line up with Him, sometimes we suffer because of that. And there's a suffering that comes, a third kind, as a result of the brokenness of the world due to sin. And the question is, what sort of suffering is in view in these verses? The short answer is, given the fact that the word used here for suffering is typically used to refer to suffering of any type, 
given the fact that the suffering spoken of here is compared to the suffering that the creation endures, which is all about sin and brokenness um, and the fallenness of the world. Given those factors, it seems to me that we're meant to understand uh, that suffering of every kind is being referred to here. Not just suffering for the cause of Christ, but also the suffering that comes because of natural diseases. Because people contract things like cancer and Alzheimer's. The suffering that comes because you've been victimized by the sins of others. It comes through natural disasters. It comes through fractured relationships. It comes through uh, crimes committed. And a thousand other things. As one commentator puts it, basically, any suffering that you meet on the road to heaven and endure by trusting in Jesus. Any suffering that drives you to your knees in despair and prayer. Any hardship, any difficulty that threatens to destroy your faith or lead you away from God. Had any of that going on lately in your life? Anything like that? If you have, while it may be hard, you need to know it's not unusual. It's not unique. Don't let it throw you. It's part of the deal part of the package. If you're a son, you're an heir. And if you're an heir, you're going to suffer. Sometimes because of your own sin. Sometimes because you belong to Jesus and other people know that and they don't like it. And it's sometimes because the world and the people around you and the human systems and structures of the world are terribly, terribly broken. And you're broken. Which leads to the third point. Not only do I want you to see that if you're a son, you're an heir, and your being an heir is conditioned on your undergoing suffering of all kinds, but also please notice that suffering is not without a purpose. The suffering, the hardship we endure, there is a meaning to it. It's accomplishing something. It's going somewhere. It's taking you somewhere to a place that is worth getting to. It's worth getting to. For one thing, it proves or demonstrates our status as heirs. The fact that we undergo hardship that drives us to Jesus over and over again is, while difficult and even heartbreaking at times, it's a kind of proof to our hearts that we do indeed belong to the Father. Now, in an odd kind of way, it demonstrates that there is a real and vital connection that we have to the Lord. Our sufferings cause us to cry out to Him because... Running to our Father in the midst of our distress is the most natural thing in the world to do if you've got a Father that you know loves you. Additionally, not only does our suffering in whatever form prove our status as heirs, it precedes and even predicts our being glorified with Jesus. Listen again to verses 16 and 17. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him, in order that we may also be glorified with Him. So our suffering is not only coming from somewhere, it's not uh, just proceeding from the fact of our being sons and heirs, it's also, it's going somewhere. It's moving us forward all the time. 
to the place where we'll be glorified together with the Lord Jesus. And the fullness of what that means um, is something uh, is, is not crystal clear in Scripture. We don't know exactly how that will fully play out. But at the very least, our being glorified with Him will involve our being clothed with our resurrection bodies, either after death or when Christ returns. First Corinthians 15 says this, There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, the glory of the earthly is of another. There is one glory of the sun and another glory of the moon and another glory of the stars, for star differs from star in glory. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable, what is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It's sown in weakness, it's raised in power. Or likewise, listen to Paul's words in Philippians 3. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself. Right. So whatever the fullness of our being glorified with Christ means, it will at the very least mean this, that when He returns in power, when Jesus comes back to rule and to reign, At that very moment, when he comes into the fullness of his glory, we who are his will somehow share in that moment. Either as we receive or we uh, receive our resurrection bodies or be transformed from these bodies into our resurrection bodies. And so these bodies that have been a source of such hardship and heartbreak and angst and struggle and pain and despair, these bodies are going to go away. Replaced by something, as the passage says, is like Christ's glorious body. If we suffer with him, that's in front of us. And please note, not only does our suffering prove our status as heirs and and precede or predict our glorification, it also plays a role in preparing us for the full appreciation of the blessings that are still in front of us. And that's huge. It's huge because... That is the place that our struggle and suffering so often takes us. Isn't it? At least it takes me there. I don't know about you, but when I'm in the midst of a hard thing, when I find myself in a very hard place, the thing that I want to know, amongst other things, the question I ask myself is this. Is there anything in front of me? Is there anything in my future that will make the sufferings and sadness and difficulty of this life seem small and seem worthwhile? Is there some future vantage point from which I will ever look back across this, even this, and it will make sense? It will seem worthwhile. Is there anything in front of me that will make this worth it? And Paul's answer is, yes, there is. Verse 18 For I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Or as Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 4, 17, 18. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. This is a guy who's beaten and left for dead and, and all kinds of things have happened to him. This light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. The things that are seen are transient. The 
things that are unseen are eternal. So what's Paul saying? He's saying that the glory that is in front of us, the glory, that glory will be worth it all. It will be, it will be so great that it will make whatever we endure now seem light and momentary. It will be so great that it's not even worth comparing or even attempting to compare the weight of our suffering with the weight of the glory that is in front of us. Do you remember the prayer that Jesus prayed for his disciples in John chapter 17? What is one of the main themes of that prayer? Do you remember? I'll tell you, it's glory. He talks about it all over that prayer. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son so that the son may glorify you. Since you've given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. I glorified you on earth having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. And he says further on, Father, I desire that they also, talking about his disciples, I desire that they also, whom you've given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me. Because you love me before the foundation of the world. What is Jesus praying? He's praying, Father, glorify me. Glorify me. And then would you make sure that all these for whom I've died can be present so that they can see my glory. I mean, on the lips of anybody else, such a prayer would seem supremely arrogant. But it's not at all arrogant on the lips of Jesus. Why would Jesus pray that his disciples would see his glory? Why? Because he knew, he knew that it would make everything worthwhile. Because he knew that's what they needed to see. He knew that they could see it, it would bring everything into focus. He knew that all the suffering and the waiting and the agonizing and the persevering, it would all be worth it if they could see his glory. They could experience his glory live with Him in the presence of that glory, if they could see that and know that, everything else would fall into place. One writer puts it like this, a Christian views the suffering of this life in a larger world transcending context that while not alleviating its present intensity, transcends it with the confident expectation that suffering is not the final word. And that's the thing we have to remember. Suffering and hardship are real and intense, but they're not the final word. Suffering is not the last chapter of any book that God is writing or any story that He is telling for those that are His. It's not the last chapter. It's not the final word for those that are His, for those who have an inheritance with Him. To be sure, while suffering lasts, it's real and it's intense, and yet it serves a purpose. Suffering knocks the props of self-reliance out from under us and makes us rely more on God. If there were no afflictions and difficulties, our fallen hearts would fall ever more deeply in love with the comforts and securities and pleasures of this world instead of falling more deeply in love with our inheritance beyond this world. 
namely God himself. Suffering is appointed for us in this life as a great mercy to keep us from loving this world more than we should. So says one wise commentator. Suffering basically keeps us leaning forward. It keeps us scanning the horizon. It keeps us up on our tippy toes waiting for the one thing that will pull all of this together. Waiting for the glory that Paul assures us will bring everything into focus. Jesus knew that. That's why he prayed for it. That's why he wanted it for his disciples. John Newton summed it all pretty nicely. He says, Suppose a man was going to New York to take possession of a large estate and his carriage should break down a mile before he got to the city, which obliged him to walk the rest of the way. What a fool we should think him if we saw him wringing his hands and blubbering out all the remaining mile. My carriage is broken. My carriage is broken. If the man only knew how great and how fantastic was this estate, this inheritance to which he was going, if he had any idea how amazing it was, he would hardly give a moment's thought to the state of his carriages or the fact that he had to travel an extra mile on foot. That's why Jesus prayed as he did, and that's why Paul writes as he does here, because he knows if we can see his glory, and we finally do see his glory, we will be blown away. And it will all be worth it. And not only will we see His glory, we will experience it, and we will share in it, and we will enjoy it with Him together for all eternity. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Help us as we wrestle with these truths. You tell us about this glory that is in front of us. We see glimpses of it here and there. Some days we see it better than others. Some days not at all. So Father, help us to hear this truth as a community. Help us to hear it as we scan around the room look where our brothers and sisters are as we identify the, those among us here who need to hear and be reminded that there is a glory in front of them that far outweighs the weight of any suffering or hardship there in the midst of would you help us to hear that truth not just for ourselves, but pastorally for others. Would you move us to be ones that encourage one another with these truths, build up one another, and help each other remember the things we're so prone to forget when we're in the middle of it all, and it's on top of us. Would you help us to do that, Father? And so redeem this truth that it lands not only on our hearts, but becomes something that we convey to others for your glory, their encouragement. We thank you, Father, for this reminder. Please help us to believe these things. Help us to have the faith to trust you for this particular truth. We pray this in Jesus' name.
We'll now take up an offering for those who want to support the work of this church or various ministries through this church.